0: Question, what do me, you, Julius Caesar, Thomas Jefferson, and Mary Queen of Scots all have in common? Encryption has played a major role in each and every one of our lives, us and hundreds of other figures in history. The major difference between us, though, is that we're not all Roman emperors or secretaries of state or even, get this, royalty. And we haven't always necessarily had the same right to privacy and encryption that those figures did. With progress in the field of cryptography, the question arises of whether or not the government should legislate encryption limits, and to what extent does each American citizen or private business deserve privacy? I'm Alia Weaver, and on this episode of One Time Pod, I will be discussing the 1990s crypto wars power struggle and its residual effects. Encryption offers two parties the ability to communicate secretly and securely by masking in some way what is called the plaintext of a message, resulting in what appears to be nonsense ciphertext. Well, it appears to be nonsense to everyone that isn't the intended recipient. Many types of encryption have come and gone as new, stronger methods and technologies have arisen to replace the more outdated methods, like simply transposing the letters of a message or shifting the letters of the alphabet by some unknown number called a Caesar shift. Today, we see encryption most in the mathematical algorithms that securely store and stream data and communications through electronic applications or, you know, just simply apps on our phones. But it all started back in the 1970s with public key encryption. Before the 1970s, the most sophisticated and developed methods of encryption were not easily available to the public because they required special training and technologies, making these forms of super strong encryption almost exclusive to the government agency and military officials. The accessibility of strong encryption methods to ordinary individuals changed dramatically, though, when researchers Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman published their paper on the revolutionary idea of public key encryption in 1976. This new method el- This new method eliminated a major problem that previously plagued encryption efficacy, the need for a face-to-face key exchange on account of distinct public and private keys possessed by both parties. Essentially, Person A would publish their public key to some media outlet, where Person B would use that public key to encode their message to Person A. Upon receiving Person B's message, Person A would use his own private key to decode the contents of Person B's message. This process ensures that anyone is able to securely send Person A an encrypted message that only his private key works to decrypt, and vice versa for Person B, or Person C, or Person D. This development set the stage for the works of Ronald Rivest, Adi Shamir, and Leonard Adelman in 1977. These guys released their rendition of public key encryption called RSA, which would ensure that messages remain private and provide a type of digital e-signature so that the recipient can confidently identify the sender. Because the government held a sort of intellectual monopoly over encryption software and technique at the time, these invent... Advancements in the field of cryptography came as threats to authorities In the 1990s with the evolution of personal phones computers and the internet came unraveling the major issue of government surveillance and encryption in reaction to increasing use of encryption by c- communications providers and manufacturers the government was adamant about maintaining a sort of back door to access plaintext data. In 1998, FBI Director Louis J. Free spoke before the Senate Select Committee briefing the overarching safety opinion on unrestricted encryption.
1: The overriding concern now facing law enforcement is how rapidly the threats from terrorists and criminals are changing, particularly in terms of technology and the resulting challenge to law enforcement's ability to keep pace with those who wish to do harm to our nation and our nation's citizens. This is why the encryption issue is one of the most important issues confronting law enforcement and potentially has catastrophic implications for our ability to combat every threat to national security that I am about to address in my statement here today. Law enforcement remains in unanimous agreement that the widespread use of robust non-recovery encryption ultimately will devastate our ability to fight crime and terrorism. Uncrackable encryption is now and will continue with ever-increasing regularity, allow drug lords, terrorists, and even violent gangs to communicate about their criminal intentions with impunity and to maintain electronically stored evidence of their crimes impervious to lawful search and seizure. Other than some type of key recoverable system, there is currently no viable technical solution to this problem for law enforcement.
0: One of the government's solutions to the encryption issue was to introduce what was known as clipper chips. These were microchips that would be placed in consumer telephones allowing access to the plain text communications by the government and intelligence agencies. Clipper chips relied on key escrow, which was a system that allowed the government to access each chip's unique encryption key, or half of it at least. In order to increase security, only half of each key could be stored by a government organization in order to avoid any kind of misconduct, but still allowed for the joint release of the two halves when the government received the appropriate authorization. The encryption algorithm used in the Clipper chip is known as skipjack, and it is special for two reasons. It was so secure in advance that it was considered classified. No one outside of the NSA was allowed to see how it worked. Not only this, though, but it was so secure that the government would only let it be used in the clipper chips if it was introduced in conjunction with a backdoor known as LEAF, or Law Enforcement Access Field, which would provide access to the keys of any encrypted information on the chip. The Clipper Chip was highly unpopular amongst the general public and among companies who had already been employing encryption, though. Whitfield Diffie, one of the creators of public key encryption, testified himself in front of Congress in 1993, arguing that the Clipper Chip is at best premature and at worst will have a damaging effect on both business security and civil rights without making any improvement in law enforcement. The Clipper Chips launched a wave of activist groups that protested One group, known as Cypherpunks, used online mailing lists, news groups, protests, and media campaigns to advocate for their protection for encryption. They also rallied the support of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the Electronic Privacy Information Center, who together gathered an unprecedented 50,000 signatures on electronic petitions and organized panels of testimonies and spoke before Congress concerning digital rights. In May 1993, a number of the very companies that would be incorporating the key escrow technology wrote to President Clinton with their concerns about the clipper chips. Companies like Apple, AT&T, Hewlett Packard, IBM, Lotus Development Corporation, Microsoft, RSA Data Security, and Sun Microsystems highlighted the possible infringement of constitutional rights and privacies by implementing the clipper chips despite the benefits they would have for national security. Not only were a number of activist groups and companies in opposition to the, te- to the technology, but even some politicians from both sides opposed the idea. Despite the many oppositions, however, the government adopted the clipper chip system under the name of the Escrode encryption standard in February of 1994. However, the government would finally ditch the clipper chip after Matt Blaze, a computer scientist at AT&T Bell Laboratories, published a paper detailing a significant vulnerability in the clipper chip technology. He detailed that it was possible for some information to be encrypted beyond the reach of the government backdoor LEAF, which closed the casket on this long-opposed government proposal. Next up, though, was the idea of commercial key escrow, which would convince companies to employ some form of key escrow requiring a cryptographic algorithm of a maximum of 64 bits. In these versions, though, the government would not hold the keys. Government-certified private escrow agents would hold the keys for a company and would be contacted by the government should they ever need access to them. However, many still held reservations about this version of what they called the Clipper Chip 2. Before 1996, all products utilizing encryption were controlled by the International Traffic and Arms Regulations and were classified as munitions because for so long they'd been used exclusively by military or intelligence agencies. By this, I mean products with encryption keys greater than 40 bits were classified among nuclear and chemical weapons, which complicated foreign export rules and regulations for such products. Americans were allowed to send encryption messages abroad, but they were not allowed to send the tools capable of decryption across the border. These rules were beneficial for the American government because it slowed the spread of the uh, strong cryptographic methods that Americans had adopted. However, this meant that American-based computer companies were forced to create foreign versions of their products that relied on weaker encryption that would be permissible to sell overseas. However, making these separate versions of computer softwares was very costly to American companies and would ultimately make American technologies uncompetitive internationally by contrast. For this reason, among many, in 1996, the Clinton administration made a small step towards liberalizing the encryption export controls. Non-military encryption items were declassified as munitions and placed on the commerce control list. The Department of Commerce created a new category of foreign policy and control specifically for encrypted items. Those involved in financial transactions, those exported to in- individual customers, and those employing key links of less than 64 bits. More pressures to relax encryption control came with the introduction of the Security and Freedom Through Encryption Act, which focused on preventing a mandatory government key escrow system and on removing export restrictions for encryption products and key links. In 1999 came just that, relaxed encryption controls. The President's Export Council Subcommittee on Encryption had removed virtually all restrictions on the retail export of encryption items. Major changes were made in the rules and regulations surrounding the issue of encryption control, and it was viewed as a great success by many, especially those activists who had championed for cryptographic freedom from the Clipper chip and the key escrow years before. In the years following this whole encryption fiasco, the internet would only become more and more successful as means of secure communication and marketplace transactions. In fact, some of the biggest e-commerce companies today, PayPal, Amazon, and eBay, found their start in just the five years after the proposal of the Clipper chip to the public. With the emergence of thriving online commerce also came a number of internet protocols which ensure secure communications between internet browsers and websites, like the secure sockets layer specification, transport layer security, and secure shell protocol, as well as a number of companies dealing specifically with certifying websites on the behalf of customers that their contents and encryption have not been tampered with. Now, the scope of the internet extends far beyond what it did at the time of the crypto wars, handling electronic banking, medical records, bills, VPNs, and a variety of other tools that would require extensive security. For years, this online world was seemingly secure and successful. All until in 2013, Edward Snowden revealed in a series of documents, A number of unauthorized and unannounced instances of government surveillance. The Snowden revelations brought into light program vulnerabilities previously unknown to consumers in their everyday online applications, as well as some serious back doors calling again into question the American citizens' right to privacy and strong encryption.